Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. You know, we don't ever talk about football around here because there's so many different schools in the church, and if somebody wins, somebody else loses. But I can't let this go. How about Washita? Huh? <laughs> They haven't beaten West Monroe, I think, since Reagan was in office. So we're really, we're really excited for you guys. Uh, and ULM's got a winning record. How about that? All right. <laughs> Woman woke up in the middle of the night, looked over. Her husband wasn't in bed with her. So she got up and went downstairs to see what was going on. She found him at the kitchen table, sitting with a cup of coffee in front of him, just staring at the wall. He takes a sip of coffee, wipes a tear from his eye. She walks into the room and whispers, What's the matter, dear? Why are you down here at this time of night? The husband looks up from his coffee and says, I'm just remembering when we first met 20 years ago and started dating. You were only 16. Do you remember back then? He asked solemnly. The woman touched to tears, thinking that her husband is caring and sensitive, says, Yes, I do, she replies. The husband pauses. The words are not coming easy. Do you remember when your father caught us in the backseat of my car? Yes, I remember, said his wife, lowering herself into a chair beside him. The husband continues, do you remember when he shoved that shotgun in my face and told me either you marry my daughter or I'll send you to jail for 20 years? I remember that, she replied softly. He wiped a tear from his cheek and said, I would have gotten out today. That's a good one. Feel free to use that. But it's really sad if you think about it. Here's a guy that would would rather have spent 20 years in prison than still be married. And it reminds us that there are a lot of people who are stuck in loveless marriages. That may be your case. In fact, we're stuck in a loveless world. We live in a world that seems to have given up on love. You listen to the songs you know, the, uh, there's an old line by Paul Simon in one of his songs says, the words of the prophets are written on subway walls. Well, I think in modern times, the words of the prophets sometimes are written in the music that we listen to because the music shapes the imagination. And you can hear the change. It's almost as if they've given up on love and they've bought in solely to lust. In fact, the lyrics are so explicit now that you can't even quote a Cardi B or a Ariana Grande song in this place. I wonder, could the Beatles even make it today? Because they made their start by singing about love. Before this, before this dance was through, I knew I loved you too. I'm so happy when I dance with you. I mean, love is lost, but not in our kingdom. That may be true in the world, but not in our kingdom, because love is the banner over the kingdom of heaven. Everything that we do can be wrapped up in that single word. And what's sad is a lot of times churches are the last place where that's really expressed in the authentic way that God calls us to. So in Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 8, Paul begins to talk about love. But he does it in a, I think, a beautiful comparison contrast with lust. And, and you know, he starts this ch- this portion of the, of the chapter talking about love, but he ends it up by talking about lust. And through this, we see this beautiful parallel that runs between our calling to love and our calling to walk in holiness. 
and to put these things back into perspective. We may not be able to change the world, but we can change the kingdom of heaven and how we walk in this world. And that's our calling. And so let's pick it up, Romans chapter 13, verse 8. And the first thing we look at is the power of love. And this is really a very abbreviated look at love. There are other places in the New Testament where Paul really drills down on love and he unpacks the whole thing like 1 Corinthians 13 and you know he just really deals with it explicitly and expressly but here he really only says two brief things about love the first thing that he says is love is the only debt you have to carry he says in verse 8 oh nothing to anyone except to love one another and i hear sometimes people talking on you know, debt and financial management, they'll refer to this, oh, no man, anything but love, as if that debt is the emphasis here. But that's really not the emphasis. There may be an underlying principle, the idea of we need to be careful with our indebtedness. But right here, the emphasis is on love. He's saying, look, don't owe anybody. We live with the debt of love. Everything we do is indebted to love. In fact, that's kind of the theme of how Romans shapes out. Because Romans chapter 1 through 11 is about salvation by grace through faith. It's the theology of grace. It's the theology of the fact that God loved us so much that He sent His Son to the cross to die for us so that we could find forgiveness and healing and cleansing and eternal life through Jesus. And so that's the theology of grace. Romans 12 through 16 is the biology of grace. Here's how grace is lived out. Here's the love you received. Here's the love you now live. And and so He's saying we live with a debt of love. But this also goes back to Romans chapter 12, verse 17 through 21, where he's talking about grace and conflict. And the idea that was prevalent in their time, still prevalent in our time, that if somebody hurts you, you owe them payback. So if, if, I, if you damage my eye, then I have to damage your eye. You break my tooth, I break your tooth. And we'll often express it that way. Man, I owe that guy. No, you don't. You don't owe that guy anything. The only thing you owe that guy is love. Because God didn't give to you what was owed to you. He didn't give you justice. That's what we're always asking for. He gave you mercy. And so the concept behind that is, owe no man anything but love in the same way that you were given love. But it also goes back to what he said in Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. The people of that time were mad at the government. Does that sound familiar? You know, I find it interesting. They were mad at the government in in the first century. They were mad at the government in the second century and in the third century, fourth century, fifth century, sixth century. 20th century, 21st century, it seems that the more things change, the more they stay the same. And some of the people in the church were like, we're not part of that kingdom. We have a different kingdom. Why should we have to pay taxes to Caesar? And so Paul wades in and he says, don't let your dumb theology get you all tangled up with government that you become so politicized that the government's after you and consequently you can't even share the gospel. He's like, stay away from all that stuff and don't let your politics be your offense. Submit to the government, pay your taxes, don't owe the government a bunch of taxes. Owe no man anything but love. And love is the only debt that we're never going to pay off. We always owe love. The second thing he says is, do love and you've done it all. He says, he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. You see that? You know, there are some people that are trying to return to Judaism. And we've got some of that going on around here. And they claim that, excuse me, the Ten Commandments and the rituals and feasts and festivals of Judaism should be included in the church today. And so what they want to do is they want to say, grace is not enough. You need to surround it with all the trappings of Judaism. And I've got to tell you, 
The church settled this, man. They settled it in the first century. Go to Acts 15, Acts 16. Those guys had a whole council to talk about this. Do you have to become Jewish in order to become Christian? And the definitive answer was no. I mean, read Galatians. Um, it's so funny. Old error in new dress, one guy said, is ever error nonetheless. And these things just keep coming back around. You've got to add to grace. What you're doing is not sufficient. Listen, if you've got to add any works to what Jesus did on the cross, then you've taken away the full merit of the cross. It's grace plus nothing. They say, well, what about that verse that says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments? Absolutely. What were his commandments? What were the commandments of Jesus? He gave us two. What were they? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do that, Jesus said, all that stuff from Abraham to Moses to David to Malachi is contained in those two commandments. Listen to Matthew 22, verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? In the law. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now look at this. On these two depend the whole law and the prophets. That's a, that's a, a, a euphemism for the Old Testament. They used to call it the law and the prophets. On this depend all the Old Testament. In other words, love is the complete fulfillment of all that other stuff. All that other stuff was a shadow of what was to come. But when Jesus came, the real was here, the shadow's done away. You don't have to do that anymore because love is the fulfillment of the law. Here's the funny thing. You can keep all of the commandments and you can do all the Jewish festivals and all of the feasts and all that stuff and still not love. But you can't love and not keep the commandments. And that's exactly what Paul says. He comes back around to this. He says, uh, verse 9 of chapter 13, you shall, uh, for this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it's summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, Paul says the same thing Jesus did. Romans 13, verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So the main thing is love. But listen, it's not the only thing. That's not all he talks about in Romans 13. This isn't a John Lennon kind of love is all you need, then go do whatever you want kind of idea. It's not a Rob Bell love wins, everybody goes to heaven regardless. That's not what he's talking about. It's not this soft, gushy sentimentality, this Oprah Winfrey concept that everybody should just do whatever they feel is right. This is a love that's deeper and that takes holiness seriously. It's like we live out the love of Christ, but we also live out the righteousness of Christ. You see, Jesus loved you just like you are. There's nothing else you could do to cause God to love you more. You are fully loved. You're totally pleasing. But he loved you too much to leave you that way. And so he went to the cross to die for our sins so that we could live the righteousness of Christ. And so what Paul does is he, he brings out the concept of love, but he, he balances it with the concept of holiness. And he does this beautiful uh, comparison contrast with love and lust. And so now let's look at the power of lust. 
And I, and I said the power of lust, I should have said the prison of lust, because that's in, in effect what happens. Verse 11, uh, do this knowing that the time, uh, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Now watch this, verse 12. The night is almost gone and the day is near. He's, he's pointing to the fact that the coming of Christ is, is, is imminent. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of the darkness and put on the armor of light. And you see this interesting analogy of lust and darkness. I mean, there's really a double meaning here. Much of what happens in terms of lust happens in the dark or it happens in the, in the darkness of the secret life, right? But it's not just a physical darkness. It's also a spiritual darkness. It's the idea that, that they're walking in that darkness and it's, it's comprehensive. And here's the point. Lust is a dark thing. And you see this beautiful comparison contrast. You know, love is a, is a bright thing. Lust is a dark thing. You say, well, if it's so dark, and why do we do it? Hmm. John 3.19 tells us why. Men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. We do it in the dark because we know that it's wrong and we don't want anyone to see us because our deeds are evil. When Amy and I were early in our marriage, uh, we were paying for this really nice little cute one-bedroom apartment, kind of a townhouse thing, and I said, baby, we can't afford this anymore. We're living too high. So I found us a little white frame house that we ultimately called the Wignall Hole. And there's a reason we called it the Wignall Hole. One of the problems at the Wignall Hole, besides the fact that it had open sewer outside, probably a mistake that I moved us there, but hey, we saved $75 a month. But one of the problems was it had roaches, not the big black kind, but the little brown kind. And there were millions of them in this house. I don't, and our, our landlord wouldn't exterminate, or I don't even, can you even exterminate that many roaches? I don't know. Atom bomb, maybe a big fire, I don't know. So we're in this house, and roaches are everywhere. And it kind of turned into a thing for us because I, I set a can of Raid. You came in through the kitchen door. There were some back steps up to a kitchen door, and you came in through, through the back kitchen door. And I'd set the can of Raid right there on the counter right beside the, the light. So, so we'd open the door, and I'd go, wait a minute, Amy. Wait, 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 wait. Don't, don't put the light on. And I would get that can of Raid, and I'd get in the middle of the kitchen, and I'd go, now! And she'd turn the light on, and I'm like, you know, killing as many as I could because the only good roach is a dead roach, Right? Why do roaches come out at night? Because their deeds are evil. <laughs> Here's something else I've learned. If you spend too much time in the dark, then the darkness gets in you. If, when you spend too much time in the dark, the darkness gets in you. It's a, it's a weird irony that obeying lust at first feels like a liberating thing. You know, the freshman goes off to college and it's a beer bust every night and that just seems so liberating. But over time, it becomes enslaving because the darkness gets in you. you know, Jesus made this, what I thought was a weird statement in Matthew 6, 22. He said, the lamp of the body is the eye. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. 
But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And when you read that and kind of take a step back, you're like, wait a minute, a light is not a lamp because a lamp produces light and your eye doesn't produce light. Your eye only receives and interprets light. So why would he call our eye a lamp? The eye doesn't produce light. It, it simply interprets light. And I think here's, here's what I think he was at. If my eye is on light, then it illuminates everything within me. And my soul becomes enlightened. But if my eye is constantly toward darkness, then what happens? My soul becomes dark. And if the light that is in me is darkness, how great is the darkness, he asks. And so I think what he's saying is when you spend time in the dark, the darkness gets in you. And I think that's where we are. We're called to light. Lust is a dark thing. We're called to light. Look at verse 12 at the end. Put on the armor of light. I love that imagery. Even when we're in the dark, we wear the armor of light. And that is seen through the actions of our life. Verse 13, let us behave properly as in the day. Circle that part. See, day, light, all those images are carrying out. Not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. I mean, we're people of the day. We're not children of the dark. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Men don't light a lamp and put it under a bushel basket. Let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And the beauty of it is, even when we are in darkness, we are still light. So the darker this world gets, the brighter our light 1 John 1, 7, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So what exactly does it look like to walk in the light? Well, he, he gives us an, an idea by telling us what it looks like to walk in the dark. And here it is, not in carousing. In the core of that word was village. And the idea was the village festival, which always turned into this debauchery of the Roman world. Uh, it, was, it was a concept of a community cultural festival that was built around debauchery. Let me think for a second. Is there anything like that in Louisiana that we can think of that might correlate? Maybe it originated in New Orleans and kind of has infected everything. I can't think of anything. Not in carousing, not in drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity, we get that. And in sensuality, that word is license. It means debauchery, no limits to the lust. And then he says this, and this is a bit of a change, not in strife and jealousy. You know, when I read these things, they all kind of go together, and I see this. You know, it's always interesting. I don't know that I ever walked out of a bar back when I was a, a wild child that I didn't run into somebody in a fist fight in the parking lot. Have you ever noticed that? Not in conflicts and jealousy. I can't tell you how many marriages were broken up because of, of the darkness of that kind of life. Either somebody 
got drunk and then somebody else was with somebody else and then who's cheating who and who's being true and who don't even care anymore? What's that old Western song? Right? And so what we see here are these two powerful ideas that are at odds with each other, love and lust. That's the point he's making. And here's the point, okay? Rush to love, run from lust. That's the point. Rush to love, run from lust. He says in 2 Timothy 2.22, Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Flee lust, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Flee lust, feed love. Flee lust, feed love. I think most people in our time have that backward. They, they feed lust and they flee love. And one of, the, one of the consequences seems to be that nobody can really find real love anymore. Why would we do that? Well, consider the contrast. Love builds up. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1, love edifies. And that word edifies means to build up. It's, it's a strange word that has to do with the house. It builds the house. Love builds the home. It edifies. When you're around somebody that's truly loving you, you become better than you were. It builds you up. You, you feel better about yourself. You, you, you feel more confident. You feel more empowered. You feel more capable because that's what love does builds up. But lust tears down. James 1.15, then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, here it is, it brings forth death. And I'll tell you how this happens. Here's how it works. Love builds up, lust tears down. Here's how it works. Love humanizes and lust objectifies. That's how it works. You see, when, when somebody really loves you, love deals with your hopes it deals with your dreams, your personality, your fear, your heartaches. Love loves the whole person. Love is just as interested in your soul as your body. And so love builds up because love humanizes. Lust, on the other hand, dehumanizes. It objectifies. It turns you into an object. And when people feel objectified, that destroys their soul. One of the things coming out of the, of the sex industry is, is what it does to the soul. And I, I've counseled with people coming out of that, and, and I've seen what it does. But you know, the funny thing is, it doesn't just destroy the soul of the person being objectified. It destroys the soul of the person doing the objectifying. Lust consumes the object, but it also consumes the subject. The one consuming is also being consumed. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts. Look why. Because it wages war against the soul. We know this. We know that lust is addicting. We know that love is liberating. So why do we keep doing it? Well, because love is hard and lust is easy. I mean, love is sacrificial and messy and relentless and exhausting. I love you despite your failures. I love you despite your quirks. I love you despite your needs. I love you when you're not lovable. I love you when you don't reciprocate that love. Love is at its core hard. 
Whereas lust is easy. It's so much easier just to treat a person like an object for your own agenda and then throw them away and move on to the next thing. It's easier just to feed lust than it is to foster love because at its core, love is a spiritual thing where lust is a natural thing. Love runs counter to our nature and lust is in our nature. Um, It's something that draws us. Paul's already dealt with this in Romans 7, verse 20. He says, but if I'm doing the very thing I don't want to do, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find that the principle evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. James says that each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. He says, don't say that God tempted you. God's not tempted by evil. He doesn't tempt anybody. Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by whose lust? His own lust. In other words, lust is residual and resident in us. It's within our nature. It's already there. And and at the same time, there is this titillating and uh, exciting element to love because it's illegal. I don't think one of the big problems of our time is that people have so nurtured lust and have walked in that darkness for so long that now they confuse love with lust and it doesn't really feel like love unless it's illegal. And so maybe we could say maybe we rush to lust because there's a rush that comes with lust. How do we rush to love and run from lust? Well, here it is, the last verse of Romans 13. Verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Two quick ideas and we're done. Let's do the second one first. Flee lust. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. In other words, you begin to build a fortress against it. You don't toy with it. You don't play with it. You don't don't allow it place in your life. That word provision means to schedule or calendar. You don't calendar opportunities for it. Bonhoeffer wrote these sobering words. He said, in our members, there is a slumbering inclination toward desire, which is both sudden and fierce. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. It makes no difference whether it's sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. It is here that everything within me rises up against the Word of God. Therefore, the Bible teaches us in times of temptation in the flesh, there is one command, flee, flee. Every struggle against lust in one's own strength is doomed to failure. It's a pretty bleak assessment, but it's so true. When it comes to lust, the answer is not fight, it's flight. You know, the Bible never tells us a single time to resist temptation. It says run from it, flee it. And and part of the way you flee it is you feed love. He says, put on Christ. That's that second part. Clothe yourself with Christ. We're back to the beginning. It's all about love. I put on Christ. Ephesians 5.1, I think, says... Uh, be imitators of Christ as dear children. I begin to imitate the things of Christ. I begin to value what Christ values. I begin to love what Christ loves, which is people. I begin to model His behavior in my life. And look, I'm not there. Um, I'm I'm a work in progress. And I can honestly say, I am not the person I want to be. And that struggle is still very real. But I can look back over the course of my time and I can say, well, I'm not the person I want to be I'm I'm not the person I used to hate. 
And I can be grateful for that. And to the degree that I put on Christ, I clothe myself in Christ every day, at that moment, change occurs. In the 4th century A.D., there was a young, privileged, spoiled man named Augustine who was living the American dream. I guess you would call it the Roman dream. He had it all. His mom loved him. She catered to him. She was a believer and she prayed over him. She wanted what's best for him. But he took all of that privilege that he had and he just, he just poured it on himself. And he lived the life of lust. And he was a wild, drunken, carousing mess. And in time, that freedom that he thought had become his own prison and the darkness that he toyed with was now the darkness that was in control. And one day, he was walking in a garden with a friend and he said, oh, tomorrow, 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 how can I free myself from these terrible urges within me that drive me to the things that hurt me? And in his despair, he walked in the garden he, he says that he thought he heard the voice of a child. They don't know if maybe some kids were playing in a garden nearby. They don't know. They're, they never found any children. But Augustine swears he heard the voice of a child. And the voice of the child said, take and read, take and read. So he went back inside the home where his mother's copy of Paul's letter to the Romans was laying on the table. And he picked it up. And Augustine read, of all things, Romans 13, 13. Same text we're looking at today. Let us behave decently as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that moment, best he knew how, all that he knew to do, Augustine said, I clothe myself in Christ. He yielded himself to the Lordship of Christ. And, and through that process of empowerment through the Holy Spirit, he was liberated from love, from lust, and he was given the freedom to love. So much so that even today, theologians still read Augustine. In fact, we call him, in some cases, Saint Augustine. And it was because of the transforming power of the life of Christ in his life. You know, that same power is available for you right now. There is no reason in the world that you should walk out of this place the way you came in. You know what darkness lust is. You know where it is. You know what it's done to your life and what it's doing to your relationships. You already know all that. Why do I keep doing it? Because it's easy and it's natural. But God calls us to stuff that's not easy and stuff that's supernatural. He calls us not to satisfying ourselves, but to unselfish love. And when we do that, our lives are filled with the power of light. You want that today? Clothe yourself in Christ. Hey, believer, you know Jesus. But sometimes even believers can just sort of give up on the battle and they forget that they're to wear that armor of light and they begin to walk in dark places. Clothe yourself in Christ. Flee lust. Feed love. 
you'll be forever changed. Would you pray with me right now? Father, we are grateful for these beautiful, inspired, transformational words of Paul to the Romans. But we're grateful that they weren't just for the Romans, they were for us right now. It's crazy, 20, 21 centuries later, we stand before you with the same issues, just as confused about love and lust as they were. And Father, I pray for transformation to occur in someone's life today. Whether it's in this room or they hear on the radio or online, wherever it is, Father, that they would simply say, I put on Christ. God, you changed a guy like Augustine. You changed a guy like me. You're still changing us. Father, you can change anybody. And I pray you would do that work. We thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit in this place. Put on Christ. We flee lust. We make no provision for it. That's our commitment to you as believers. We make no provision for lust, no provision for the flesh. We put on Christ. And Father, I thank you that you are changing us day by day into the image of Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.